Amen. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Blake is over at Anderson this week. He will be back next week, continuing our study of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 20 uh, this morning. I want to tell you a story about a time when I was in high school. I went down to um, Six Flags with some buddies to ride roller coasters and as we were walking around, I saw some Six Flags employees who were cleaning up the ground, right? They had these little, these little trays that were on the end of a stick, and they were walking around the park with a little broom, and they were sweeping, sweeping up little pieces of trash, right? You know, and the sticks are short, so they're all kind of hunched over like this, and their eyes are down, and, you know, and I watched these, these folks kind of sweeping up the trash, and I, I said to myself, and I really have this very vivid mental picture, as I looked at them in a very condescending manner, and I thought to myself, that is a job that I will never do. So maybe you can kind of anticipate where this might be going, right? <laughs> when I was in seminary, I picked up a lot of, of what I would describe as menial jobs to help pay my bills. And one of those was taking tickets at a, at a little booth at a parking garage in downtown Dallas. It's like a 10-story parking garage, and I would sit there and I would take the tickets. The reason I took the job is because I was able to study a lot uh, in between people coming through during work times. But one of the responsibilities that went with being the ticket guy in the booth was from time to time I had to get out of my booth and I had to walk the entire garage with a little tray on the end of a stick sweeping up little pieces of trash, right? And I would try to do it at times when there weren't any cars coming through so no one would see me. But from time to time, you know, this car would pass, right? And I'd keep my eyes down. Sometimes I'd lift my eyes up and I could just feel their condescension toward me. I could just feel them looking down upon me. And and I mean, really, everything in my heart, I just want to scream out and say, I have a college degree from Texas A&M University, right? I, 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 chose, I chose to forego a, a full ride in graduate school in order to put myself through seminary. I'm worthy of your respect because not only am I actually smart, but I'm humble. And, <laughs> and I'm spiritual too. You should respect me. You know, it's especially hard when I would see People about my age driving nice cars, right? And I'm thinking they have nice cars and they have nice jobs and they have nice apartments and I have a junky job and a junky apartment and I just, oh, I just struggled. But I, I wanted my life to be significant and mattered and, and I really believe that it did. But I, I wasn't feeling the honor and respect that I thought I really deserved. And I I would say that, you know, that's natural for us. But there's something that's very natural in us that that we long for a great life, a significant life. We don't want people looking down on us or being condescending toward us. We want them to honor us and respect us and and validate the fact that that we are leading really, truly great lives. And, And I would argue this. I would argue that that's perfectly normal because that's how God designed us. I would, I would say this. True greatness actually resides in our DNA. Right? This is the way that God has made us. He has actually made us for greatness. So when we long for greatness, so to speak, it's perfectly natural. Let me read to you the words of David in Psalm chapter 8. He said this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, I'm, I'm amazed. God, it's, it's great and it's beautiful and it's glorious and it's, it's beyond... Uh, even what anyone can calculate or imagine. And when I think about that, and then I think about myself, he says, what is man 
that you take thought of him? Why do you even consider us or the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. In other words, David says, I understand there's God. And then just right below it, second in the universe, men and women made in the very image and likeness of God. We were, in fact, designed for greatness. And so when we long for it, it's natural. It's normal. There was a 2015 survey that was done by a group. uh, It's called Fatherly. It's online parenting advice. I hope that's not a storm coming in. And uh, they they asked little kids, three to four-year-olds, they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the overwhelming answer was, I want to be a superhero. I want to be great. They asked kids who were a little bit older, age 10, what do you want to be? And they said, professional athlete, by and large. I want to be great. Right? That's natural. That's normal. But if I can borrow some language from C.S. Lewis, he said, we're bent. It's normal to long to be great and to be honored and respected, but we're bent. Our minds are bent, our emotions are bent, our will is bent, our relationships are bent. And so we really don't understand what true greatness is or how to find it, how to get it. We really don't understand that. So I I want you to read with me Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21, in light of Psalm chapter 8. Matthew 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. So before we throw James and John and their mom under the bus, which we will do, I promise, in just a minute, let's remember, it's a really pretty normal request, in a sense. It's natural. The problem is with their understanding of how one actually experiences greatness. Let's read this again. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared for my father. True greatness resides in our DNA, but I would also argue that true greatness, true greatness refutes our fallen, broken, bent philosophies. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 22. You don't actually know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking. Think back to that time when when we were children. And there was always somebody telling us what to do, right? It was our parents, or it was a teacher, it was a coach. And when we were children, we heard all these people telling us what to do. And didn't it cross your mind to think, well, you know, I can't wait until I'm an adult, right? Because then I'll be the one telling everyone else to do, right? What to do. Then I'll be in charge. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Little did we know. Jesus says, you don't actually understand what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking for. So what was it actually that they were asking for? I would say there are a couple things. One is they they were seeking honor without humility. They wanted honor and respect, but without humility. Okay, let's set the stage, because really this whole scene is is really wrong in so many ways, right? James and John, they're adult men. 
And now, talk about helicopter mom, holy cow. Their mom, their mom is going to Jesus, Savior of the universe, and, and, and making this request. How embarrassing is that? How humiliating is that? And we don't really know, like, you know, what's going on here. Did she, like, grab him by the earlobes and go, come on, you know, we're going to talk to Jesus I don't know. You know, maybe she was just like that strong a personality. I think it's actually, it was collusion because James and John had strong personalities too. Jesus called them sons of thunder. When the Samaritans were disrespectful to Jesus and the disciples, they said, Jesus, are you ready for fire from heaven? We're ready to pull in Elijah. Boom. Let's just wipe him out, destroy him, right? I mean, this is, this is a strong family. So I think they probably all got together and said, Mom, I think the best approach is this. Why don't you go ahead of, and we'll be right there, right? Because she's got her sons right there. And she asked the question, then Jesus turns to them and says, you don't really know what you're asking. Now, what are you asking for? They want honor, but without humility. I think they also are expecting authority, but without submission. Read with me verse 24. It says, Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Right? The, the throne is the highest seat in the room. And the disciples, James and John in particular, not, they're not trying to usurp Jesus' throne, but they want the thrones right next to Jesus because if they've got the right and the left, then they don't have to give in to the other disciples at all, right? Then they have authority over everyone else who's down the line, right? They're not try, trying to take Jesus' place at this point, but they are trying to be over the rest of the disciples. And the response of the other disciples is they're indignant, we're told. They're furious. They're angry. Why? Why are they so angry? Are, are they saying to themselves and one another, man, I can't believe James and John, they're totally ruining our culture here because, you know, these disciples, we're so, we're so humble and meek and kind toward one another and we defer to one another. We've got this really great servant attitude within the disciples. No, that's not what they're saying at all. They're saying, I can't believe they asked first, right? Because if you look at the gospels, in fact, over and over and over again, the disciples are arguing among one another who's the greatest. Right? They continuously argue over who, in fact, might be the greatest. And so they are indignant. Right? They want honor and respect, but they don't want humility that comes with it. They want to be superior over others, but they're unwilling to submit, to defer, to serve, to give in. And I would argue that that is what we have inherited from our adversary. That is is the pattern of Satan that we choose to follow. Isaiah chapter 14 says this, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is actually a description of the king of Babylon. There's a similar description of the king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28. But most theologians think basically this is written after the pattern of Satan, our adversary. Because this is exactly what he did. In his beauty, in his glory, in his intelligence and power, he said, I don't have to stay in submission to God. I can be like God. And I would argue this is the pattern. This is the character that we have inherited or borrowed or pattern often 
our lives after. We have this concept of what it means to be great is that you can just reach out and grasp it. Command that these two sons of mine will be great in your kingdom. They get the right and the the left. They can just grab it. They don't need to be deep and godly and mature people. Just, Just grasp it. And really, that's the world's concept of greatness. It's just something that you reach out and you grasp. The root of this is pride. Read with me again verse 22. It says this. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we got this. <laughs> That's pride. And, it, and it's, it's in all of us. But sometimes it's really subtle and, it, and it's hard to see. So there are a few things that I've noticed in my own life that kind of um, begin to clue me in that pride is starting to, to well up in me. Pride, meaning that, that desire, that sense of need that I've, I've got to exalt myself. I see pride sometimes uh, in the way that I think of myself. Do I demand my rights or am I willing to surrender my rights? Do I desire to be promoted alone or do I work for the promotion of others? I see pride in the way I think of others and in the way that I treat them. Do I have to be in control or am I willing to surrender control? Do I feel the need to change others to fix them or do I love them? Do I focus on their faults or do I praise their good qualities? I see pride in the way I expect to be treated by others and how I feel when they slight me. When I'm criticized, am I defensive or am I teachable? Am I easily offended? Am I one of those people that others just kind of have to dance around? Right? When a clerk is serving me at a business and they take a phone call and, and stop serving me, am I offended? Somebody cuts me off in traffic. Am I offended? Do I want to shake my fist or something else at them as they're cutting in front of me in traffic? How do I respond? Am I that person you got to dance around? Somebody forgets my name. They should remember my name. I see pride in my unwillingness to confess sin and seek forgiveness, whether that's with God or with others. As I, I gave you that list, maybe you're saying to yourself, ouch, that's me. Or maybe you're saying, well, thank God that's not me. I mean, I have other sins that I struggle with, but I'm glad it's not pride, right? I mean, <laughs> if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes that's, that's, that's how we feel. But whatever your response is, the fact is this. It's, it's natural and it's normal for us to long to have lives of significance and honor and respect. You were made for that. That's the image of God in you. But in the fall, we become bent and we don't understand what true greatness is or how to get there. If I can say it differently, we need our minds renewed by the Spirit of Christ. Read with me again verse 24. It says, Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Andrew Murray wrote a wonderful little book on uh, humility. Short little book. I highly recommend that you read it. You can get it for about a dollar on Amazon now. And he said this. 
There is nothing so natural to us, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. And so we need our minds renewed by the Spirit of Christ. We don't naturally think about greatness. We want honor without humility. We want authority without submission. We want to be superior to others. We want to think, here's me, and then here's you. And I'd say there's one more thing that we often want, and that is we want the crown, but we don't want the cross. We want the crown, but we don't want the cross. The disciples argued over and over and over again about who was the greatest, and frequently that discussion came right after Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Look at chapter 20, verse 17. It says, as Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles and mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And James and John, mother, came to Jesus and he said, that's nice, uh, dear one, but could my son sit on your right and on your left? I mean, this happened, it happened over and over and over again with disciples. They either completely ignored what Jesus said about suffering the cross, or they rejected it entirely, as in Peter's case, when he said, no, that's not what I signed up for. That's not the life of greatness for you, Jesus. It's not the life of greatness for me. And they said, no. That's why just earlier, chapter 16, Jesus has said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You want a crown without the cross, but the way to greatness is through suffering and sacrifice and humility and service. It's completely contrary to the way that the world conceives of greatness. So let me give you three characteristics of a true path to greatness. The first is this. Suffering is compulsory. Right? Suffering is it's a mandatory class. It's not elective. It's not that some people get to choose into that class and others don't have to take that class. Suffering is compulsory. Verse 22, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, yes, we are able. He said, well, actually, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. What's the cup? Well, Old Testament, the cup was uh, the cup of, of reeling or indignation or wrath. It was God pouring out his justice upon sin. Jesus drank that, we're told, to the dregs, right? To the very, very bottom of the cup. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus against our sin. And correspondingly, there was suffering, right? Physical suffering, emotional suffering, abandonment by friends, physical torture, spiritually somehow a fracture in the Trinity separated from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cup. For the disciples, it wasn't the cup of the wrath of God because that was all poured out on Jesus, but it was the suffering of being associated with a crucified and humiliated Messiah. And Jesus says, you will drink my cup. James was the first disciple who was martyred to death. John lived a long life, but it was after he had been boiled in oil and exiled to the island of Patmos. All of the disciples, in fact, did suffer because of their association with Jesus. And Jesus promised them that. He told them that, right? Uh, Upper room discourse, Matthew chapter 15. He's about to go to the cross. They're disoriented, but he's just throwing lots of stuff at them. He says, don't worry, the Spirit will bring it back to your minds. But I need to tell you something. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's a promise. 
Paul said the same thing. He said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You ever seen those, those nice leather-bound uh, promises of God book, right? They're leather-bound, gold around the edges. They're, they're really beautiful. You can get, get a lot of versions of those at a Christian bookstore or online, whatever. Um, I, I was given one of those one time. And there's a really, there's a strange absence. These verses about suffering aren't, aren't in the pro- promise books. There are lots of other nice promises that are in there. But this is a promise as well. If you desire to live godly, and you associate deeply with Jesus Christ, you will suffer in some form during this life. You will suffer loss. But it may be the loss of friendships. When I first, in high school, began wanting to walk with Jesus, I lost all of my friends. I had no friends. This is before I moved to Texas and there are lots of Christians in high school. There were no Christians in my high school in New York. Two. I take that back. Pastor's son and I didn't want to hang out with him. And then one other kid. <laughs> I didn't know his name. All right. No friends. I had no friends. I had no friends. My wife had exactly the same experience. All the friends left. To a period of time where she had no friends. It's one of the things that, that connected us together. We knew, that, we knew what that was like. Can we be friends? Sure. <laughs> you may lose friendships. You may lose respect from colleagues. When I decided not to go to grad school in economics, but instead to go to seminary, even though I was thinking at one point, maybe I will go back and do grad school, but right now I'm going to seminary. I had a couple profs who said, oh, okay, that's, that's nice. But I had others who literally called me into their offices and cursed me to my face. You are a blanking, blanking idiot. I, can't, I mean, yeah, I mean, even at you know, conservative Texas A&M University, I got cursed by my profs to my face, my foolishness. To not go to grad school, but to pay my way through seminary. You may lose respect from people that you want their respect. You may lose promotions. I've known people who've lost family inheritance. You might lose your marriage even. I had a really, really close friend who's going through grad school at, at A&M. He started to walk with the Lord really seriously. And his wife divorced him. Later, he wanted to go to seminary, and he was having a little bit of difficulty getting in because he'd been divorced. And so his ex-wife wrote him a letter. I read the letter. She wrote him a letter that said, he was a great husband. I just didn't want to be married to a Christian. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Might lose your freedom. Might lose your property. Might lose your life. We don't experience that in this country, but so often in this country where it is relatively easy to be a Christian, we become disconnected with the rest of the the, the Christian community, and we become disconnected with the long history of the church, which is a history of persecution, suffering, imprisonment, loss of property, even sometimes loss of life. Persecution of Christians is at really a, a significant high right now. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution in some form or fashion to the degree that you associate closely with Jesus Christ. I love this poem by Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary in India for uh, most of her adult life. 
And she wrote this poem from the perspective of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. It's entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that, that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? What she's saying through the mouth of Jesus is this. It's not normal to go through life as a Christian and not have a wound or a scar. It probably means that we're not associating deeply with Jesus. But if you want a great life, a life that's, that's remembered on and on and on, it's a life of associating with a suffering Savior. Right? This is not an elective. This is compulsory. Suffering is compulsory to have a great life. Second, service is mandatory. Verse 26, Jesus says, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great, and it's natural, it's normal, you want to become great, but if you wish to become great, become a servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Jesus said, you want to be great? Be a servant. And then he ups the game even further. He says, you want to be great? Actually be a slave, a doulos. Surrender your right. This is the same terminology that's applied to Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, who, although he existed in the form of God, second member of the Trinity, son of God, eternally existent, yet chose to not just take on the form of humanity, but the form of a slave. Beautiful illustration of Jesus. John 13, on his hands and knees in front of his disciples, taking on the robe of a servant, a slave, washing his disciples' feet. He says, pattern your life after this. This is the pathway to true greatness, genuine greatness. It's going low. It's humility. And it begins with a choice, right? Humility is a character quality that we begin to practice, we begin to choose, we begin, literally humility means to, to put or to place low, to, to lower, not in value, but we put ourselves below others and we lift them up, we serve them and consequently lift them up, that's humility. James chapter 4 verse 10 says this, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Peter says it similar, similarly, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Notice it's an imperative, it's a command, it's something that you can obey. This is a reflexive verb in Greek. It says, humble yourselves, right? Others can try to humiliate you, but only you can humble yourself. You choose to go low. You choose to put yourself below others and serve them and lift them up. And in that process, your character is transformed. And I would argue, you know, in today's culture, this is a hard sell. Humility is a hard sell. Humility was even in... in, uh, Jesus' day was not a virtue on the virtue lists. And I think even less so today. You know, our our very own Matt Morton actually wrote a book on humility. The reason you don't know that is you've never read it because nobody published it. (laughs) It's a really good book. 
but he shopped it to a bunch of publishers and they didn't want to publish it because they said, we can't sell it. We can't sell a book on humility. Maybe if you rebrand it in terms of, of um, leadership, right? Great leaders do these things, or maybe in terms of self-help or personal development, but not humility. Now, the irony is uh, the book that I quoted from Andrew Murray, Murray, it's literally, it's just titled Humility, and it was a bestseller in the church years ago. Humility, go low. Choose to serve, and as you choose to serve habitually, it transforms your character, right? To have a great life, it's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of service, which requires humility. But we won't humbly serve, I would say, unless we're really deeply secure people. Right? Insecure people don't serve others. They can't. They're fearful. They can't go low because then they feel that others will devalue them. Only secure people are willing to serve. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Why? Because he knows who he is. He's the son of God. It's a rule and reign over everything. Hey, not a big deal. I can wash even Judas' feet. I can handle that. Right? He was secure. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He knew the father's love. He knew his destiny. He, he knew who he was. And so he served. And when we grow in that sense of, of security, God values us. God loves us. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. This one belongs to me, my family. Loved by the creator of the universe. When we have that sense of deep security, then we'll be willing to say, let me go low and let me serve you and let me sacrifice for you. Third, patience is indispensable. You want a pathway to true greatness? Patience is absolutely indispensable. Peter said this, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And here's how the verse ends. In order that he may exalt you at the proper time. What's the proper time? Well, in my mind, it's now. It's definitely sooner rather than later. Another great book I want to put on your list is by J. Oswald Sanders. It's called Spiritual Leadership. He said this, If the disciples figure to learn about leadership on the fast track and with appropriate perks and bonuses, Jesus soon disillusioned them. Or you might get a, a, little, a little taste of that affirmation and acknowledgement in this life. Someone sees you serving or sacrificing or preaching and they go, awesome. But the sense of satisfaction that you get from that is, is fleeting. It's gone. Because deep in your soul, what you really long for is to be great forever. Or to be great in the eyes of Jesus. To be acknowledged by the one who really sets the value for all things. And he says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Right? You might get it for just a moment, but it won't be lasting. Right? And that requires patient endurance. To serve and suffer and sacrifice and become a humble person for a lifetime and wait and wait and wait for the reward, that requires patient endurance. That means our minds have to be renewed. We've got to be transformed. Read with me again, verse 26. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
That word for ransom is literally the price that is paid to set a slave free. And men and women were, were born slaves. We're born slaves first to sin and death. And we think in our broken, fallen minds, in a sense, we can work our way out of that. I I do good and my good outweighs my bad. I attend church even on rainy days when others stay home, right? I'm I'm better than most. But you can't. You can't pay the price. The price is too steep. It's, It's your life. And so Jesus gave his life instead as a ransom, right? The price paid to set a slave free. Slaves to sin and death. And the moment you believe in Jesus, that ransom that has been paid by him on the cross is applied to your account and you are free. You're free from sin. You're free from death. You have life that lasts forever. You belong to the family of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You are valued. We need Jesus to ransom us, to set us free, to change our minds. But notice he also says, this is a pattern for you to follow, right? It's not just a substitute to get you free from sin and death, but this is a pattern for you to follow among yourselves as disciples, right? Live this way, follow my pattern. I'll give you another quote from Andrew Murray. He said this, humility is the one indispensable condition of a true relationship with Jesus, We come to him and we offer nothing. We have nothing to give. Instead, he takes away our debt and he enriches us with the spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling in us. And then he gives us an example. He says, you want to live a great life? Follow this pattern. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the pattern for you to walk. And if you don't walk it, your life won't be great. It might be great for a brief period of time and there may be people in the world who stand up and applaud you greatly and they hand you trophies and they put plaques on your wall and they give you extra money because you become great in the things that they value, but none of that lasts. None of that lasts. And if if we're wise and we let the Spirit really speak to our hearts and our minds, we say no to those things that are shiny and glittery right now. And we say and said yes to Jesus and his pathway. Because Pride is foolishness, and humility is wisdom. Listen to this word from Solomon, Proverbs chapter 16. He said, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Wow, that's, that's kind of harsh language, right? Solomon, couldn't you dial that back a little bit and say, you know, everyone who's proud in heart, it's not really the best thing. God, it doesn't, God doesn't really like it much. No, he goes, it's an abomination. What's an abomination? Well, that's a word that's applied to idols. So the, the, the proudful person, prideful person is an idolater. What's the idol? It's self. Right? It's self. It's idolatry. And God, in fact, will not give his glory away to any other. In fact, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Told Isaiah, his name will be the only one. There will be no other name. He will not give away his glory to others. But you know, the beautiful thing is that he wants to share it, but he won't give it away. And Christians, this applies to us as well. When we choose this pathway of pride, we're stealing from God what only belongs to God. And so Peter says again, chapter five, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God literally stands against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And God, in his kindness to us, stands against our pride because our pride is foolishness and he doesn't want us to waste our lives. So in his kindness, he crushes our pride. That's God's goodness in your life because pride is an abomination. It's false worship. It won't last. He wants you to have a life that is, in fact, great forever. And so he's going to stand against all of this silliness where we say to one another, here's me and then here's you. Me, me, you, you, maybe you, maybe me. This is, this is me, this is you. Because we're grabbing something from God that is only his possession. But the beauty is this. There's nothing that you sacrifice, no service that you make in the name of Jesus that God doesn't reward. Right? He's generous in giving. He's not stingy. God's not cheap. He loves to reward our sacrifice and service. He loves to see us following the pattern of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me read to you again from Proverbs chapter 29. It says this, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor as we patiently wait for true greatness to be bestowed upon us. Now, how do we apply this? I want to give us a a couple specific applications. Uh, If I can, ask the the servers to go to the back and prepare communion for us and let let me make application for us. We become great when we develop humility. Humility is a, is a, it's a character quality. And we begin to develop that quality when we make choices, day in and day out, to go low. Right? I put myself below others. I lift them up. I'm not devaluing myself because I'm a beloved child of the king of the universe. But I'm making choices to go low. And as I make those choices consistently in that pattern, and I'm looking to the reward and the acclaim of the one true God, Slowly, gradually, just subtly, he changes my my character. And so what I want to challenge you to do is just choose someone to serve this week. Uh, Particularly, choose somebody to serve that doesn't deserve your service. Maybe choose somebody to serve that there's nothing that they can give back. Choose someone to serve that uh, maybe no one even knows that you have done the service, right? Secretly do it. And I will confess to you that uh, I, I really like to do this from time to time. I just go off and I'll do something in service and, and, and nobody sees it. But then there's that other little bent part of my brain that says, but wouldn't it be cool if somebody saw me? And they could write an article about that. You know, I mean, I, there's, uh, you know, it's just, I'm like always on that line. And so I have to consistently crush and crucify that pride in me. And I do it by choosing to serve. Choose to serve one person this week, not for anything that they can give back to you, not because they deserve it at all. Let me give you one more quote here from Andrew Murray. He said, here's the path to the higher life, down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless and that's what Jesus has done for us. So if I can ask the servers to come forward and serve us. Uh, as they're passing out the, the cup and the bread, let's just take a moment and thank Jesus for his humility. For his willingness, in fact, to, to give all to us so that we can have eternal life, but also so that we can understand this is the path to greatness. And let's take a few moments quietly 
uh, to thank Jesus for that, and then we will take the elements together. Father, I pray that you would give us uh, courage to listen to the voice of your spirit and follow Jesus as we go low. We serve and we sacrifice and we lift others up in the name of your son, Jesus. And as we hope, Father, for that day when Jesus will be exalted and his name will be the name above every other name, not grabbing the glory from him, but Jesus sharing the glory with us because we've chosen to follow his path. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week serving others.